0: You're listening to the CyberWire Network, powered by N2K. If you have a tool that is assessing the pace of learning and uh, is assessing the well-being of students for you and presenting you with information about individual children that can help inform the way you teach, that has got to be a positive
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CyberWire's Hacking Humans podcast, where each week we look behind the social engineering scams, the phishing schemes, and criminal exploits that are making headlines and taking a heavy toll on organizations around the world. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire, and joining me is Joe Kerrigan from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dave. Got some good stories to share this week, and later in the show, my conversation with Justin Riley... He is the CEO of Impero, and we're going to be talking about the mental health of kids in the digital age. All right, Joe, let's uh, jump into some stories this week. Uh, my story this week is actually uh, some research. It's a white paper that was published by the folks over at CloudSec. They're a security company, um, and it's titled Unearthing the Million Dollar Scams Targeting the Indian Electric Vehicle Industry. Really? Yeah. Now— uh, electric vehicles are hot. Yes, uh, especially
2: when they use their batteries up.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but um, <I'm> bump, <laughs> uh, and uh, and you know, I think um, I think uh, electric vehicles have in some ways taken off a lot faster than some people expected that they would. Right. It's one of those transitions that slowly, 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 and then quickly, quickly, quickly. Right. <laughs> There's yeah, there a, was all kinds of point.
2: all kinds of attempts at the electric car back in the eighties and nineties. Right. There's even an Ed Begley jr movie who killed the electric car. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah. Which
2: is a good movie if you, if you watch it, but well, this
1: story is about, uh, not so much cars, but electric bikes and scooters, mm-hmm. which are very popular in India, a uh, great way for people to get around, um, and very cost effective, you right. know, and when you have congested cities and and so on and so forth, there's a great way to get around. Doesn't cost a lot of money. Um, and a great thing about an electric is, you know, you're not – like unlike a like a two-stroke engine that a lot of scooters oh, and yeah. mopeds and things like that.
2: Those things are noisy and
1: dirty. Noisy and dirty. So this is much better for the environment. So this is a hot market right. uh, in India. So what the scammers have done is uh, they have created phishing lures and they're using Google ads uh, on uh, keyword searches hmm. um, for folks who are looking to open e-bike dealerships. Really. So they're taking advantage of people who have a, a bit of an entrepreneurial spirit who are trying to get in on this uh you know, this wave of electric vehicles. Right it's and a the growing pop- market. The popularity in uh India in particular.
2: And you know what's most important about these people, Dave? What's that? They probably have money to invest.
1: Well, there you go. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what? I think I was thinking about this, and I think this is one of those things where um yes, you need some money to invest, but it's not like you're opening a car dealership. Right. Well, you need millions and millions of dollars. You know, uh, probably I don't know, hundred thousand dollars or something. You could open a scooter dealership or something like that, and and that's the kind of thing where you could get together with some friends, pool your resources,
2: right. and you're in business. Yeah, but you know, if you're if if I was a scammer, a hundred thousand dollars would be a good target for me. Yeah, that'd be a good day if I can scam somebody out of that money. Right.
1: Exactly. Mm-hmm. So what these folks are doing is uh, they have these, they run these Google ads, they attract people, and then they they uh, they send them to fake websites, mm-hmm. and they say, "So you want to be a, a dealer for our electric scooters, our electric bikes?" Mm. And so now they start gathering information from the folks, and they lead them down a path of pretending like they're sending them, you know, that they're setting them up to be a dealer, and at some point. They uh, ask for some money. Mm-hmm. Here's the deposit we need before we ship you these things. Here's the deposit we need to get your paperwork going. Right. And on and on and on. Um, and then, you know, that's ultimately where the scam goes. There, There is no dealership. There are no bikes. There's, you know, nothing like that. But right. they've set up all this infrastructure with these websites that look legit. This report ha- has some pictures of some of the uh, websites that they've set up.
2: And there's probably a significant lag time between – the time you send them the money and they promise anything is going to happen. Right. So that gives them time to move the money out of the account so you can't get it back. That's right. That's right. Uh,
1: and they also show some of the um, the Google ads that uh, these folks are, are, play, are, uh, are uh, putting out there. Like one of them says, apply for e-bike dealership. Apply now. Another one says, uh, e-bike India. Ride the future. Book your electric scooter now. Uh, Come and be part of accelerating mobility for the future generations. Mm -hmm. So apply for a dealership. Um, So I just think this is interesting in that, you know, this is kind of a – it's more than a a scam targeting consumers, right? It's, as you said, it's targeting folks who have a little more money to lose, Mm -hmm. um, are excited about perhaps starting a business. Right. Right, making a better life for themselves, sure. right? As, yeah. as we all would like to do. Anybody who's who's uh, been an entrepreneur, um, so taking advantage of a person who is in that emotional state of uh, having that combination of some resources and some ambition,
2: and I'm sure this process is very convincing. Yeah, you know, yeah, the, you know, it looks it looks to me like like this is something that that starts off with okay, we've got somebody on the line, right? We've got we've got one on the hook. Let's begin the process of of emulating what this would look like in the real world if somebody was actually trying to open a scooter dealership, yeah uh and then at some point in time you know and they probably have multiple people on the hook at all uh, at all times, just like any organization does right uh and then at some point in time they take the money and they're gone,
1: yeah, yeah. So, I mean, recommendations, these are familiar things. Uh, you know, don't click on the ad. Right. Uh, if you see an ad and you're interested in something like this, if you wanted to become an e-scooter dealer, you know, first search for the the legitimate brands out there. And, uh, you know, do, do the work and find out what their legitimate website is. Reach out to them that way.
2: Yeah, you're going to have to uh, – to, I don't know how, how the legal system works in, in India. But if I was doing this in the U.S., I would definitely have an attorney involved. Mm. Right, just mm-hmm. to make sure that I'm dealing with the right people, so that I don't get scammed. But yeah. you know, again, that's another cost that I'm going to have to incur. Uh, also, I'm going to, in in this kind of case, let's say I was going to open a franchise, mm-hmm. um, and I want to open a, I don't know, Arby's franchise. Sure, let's just pick one. Why not? I'm not doing that until I go to Arby's headquarters. Okay, I'm going to go there mm-hmm. and and talk to them and make sure and meet these people face to face because a franchise is not a small investment right yeah, yeah. it's it's a large investment so i'm I'm going to go out and and meet these people same with with a dealership i'm gonna if i'm gonna i'm going to go to an office space a physical office space and and meet these people
1: mm-hmm.
2: uh, and that's how I'm going to protect myself against this yeah uh the other thing is it's interesting that this is a uh this starts with google ads you know search ads mm-hmm. um this is a problem that we've been talking about for a number of year, years with Google uh, about about their ads. And mm-hmm. frankly, they're not incentivized to stop it because these scammers do give them money to, to run the ads. Yeah. Um, I don't think it's a large portion of their business model, but they do have a perverse incentive to not stop this from happening. Yeah. I'm not saying they don't stop it from happening. They may very well... Try, make an effort to do that, but the incentive is not there.
1: Right. And and I think it's, it's very much a cat and mouse game because yeah. you've got, you know, the scammers figure out ways to uh, avoid or evade the the automated systems that Google has yeah. to sort of root these things out. That's right. And so then Google is left playing a game of whack-a-mole where mm-hmm. they're responding to reports. and And I think, you know, Google does in good faith take things down when they're reported to them. But if something figures out a way to avoid their automation, it's hard for Google to do that. Uh, as I always say, operating at scale, right? Well, right. if you can't do that at scale, maybe you shouldn't do that. <laughs> right. um, so that's, that's, that's where we are, right?
2: Yeah, that's where we are. Yeah.
1: All right. Well, it's an interesting report and uh, slightly different than some of the ones we've seen. And that's what caught my eye about it. Uh, we will have a link to that in the show notes. Again, that is from the folks over at CloudSec. All right, Joe, that's my story this week. What do you have for us?
2: Dave, my story comes from Vade Security. They're a French company. Mm. Uh-huh. <laughs> and uh, they have released what they call their 2021 Fisher's Favorite Report, hmm. which is uh, a pretty good report. It's 16 pages. You do have to cough up an email to get the report, though. Hmm. Uh, so keep that in mind. Uh, let's play some games, Dave. Okay. Okay. Uh, I, I love doing these when we get these kind of reports out. Okay. If you were going to pick the number one impersonated brand in a phishing attack, what do you think it would be?
1: Mm, I would say it's probably a shipping company. Oh. So I would say like UPS or FedEx.
2: Ah, wrong. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <clears throat> the number one, and this is this is new from this year, it's up, is yeah. Facebook. Really? Facebook is number one. Hmm, Okay. Uh, in fact, the first shipping company isn't even on this list until number 11, it looks like. Huh. And it is not FedEx or UPS. Okay. Can you guess who it
1: is? Oh, what's the big, what's the international one? Yep. Um,
2: you're on the right track. Yeah. I Red and yellow.
1: S- yeah, it's like three letters. DHL. Uh, DHL. Thank right. you very much. Okay. Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yep. Now, if you're going to pick cloud services, who do you think the number one cloud service in uh, impersonation would be.
1: I would go with AWS.
2: Ah, you'd be wrong again. Microsoft.
1: <sighs> Microsoft. Okay.
2: Right. Now, if you were going to pick the largest e-commerce site,
1: that would be Amazon.
2: Ah, there you go. Ding, 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 ding. ding, ding, ding. You got it. <laughs>
1: okay. <laughs> I'd be doing all right if I was a baseball player. One out of three. Right. <laughs> okay.
2: Now, uh, their their financial services website is a French company that I've uh, never heard of. But yeah. so let's let's discount that one, Dave. Okay. If you were going to go with another financial services company, what do you think is second on their financial list? Financial services company? Yes. Uh,
1: I would say like Merrill Lynch or, yeah, one of the big, one of those.
2: Okay. Well, if you're going to go with like traditional financial services company, you're close. It's it's Wells Fargo, but higher on the list is actually PayPal. Oh, okay. PayPal is, is, is pretty high on the list.
1: Yeah, I guess I don't reflexively think of PayPal as being a, right financial services company
2: we don't think of that yeah i find it interesting that that facebook is dominating the uh the social media phishing hmm. and you know i think i know why that is yeah and here's my suspicion first off i think facebook accounts are valuable mm. particularly when you build a uh, a business presence on them right mm-hmm. now we're in the process of doing this with my wife she's starting a small business okay and uh one of my concerns is the security of her personal account because she's an admin on the business page that she has. I see. Mm -hmm. I'm also an admin. Our daughter is also an admin. Mm -hmm. Uh, But if they got access to her account, her personal account, they could come into that page, kick my daughter and me off as admins and start marketing anything else, change everything about it, take complete control of it. And we've seen that happen. Right. Uh, And getting that back from Facebook is very very difficult. Oh, so you just
1: call up Facebook customer support, <laughs> Joe. Uh, right. Just call the one eight hundred number. Someone will answer the phone and and be on your request. Right. Hey, right Joe, away. what can I do for you? Yeah. Oh, Joe, good to hear from you again. <laughs> what? Someone took over this? Oh, well, that won't stand. Let we'll me, fix that let, right let, now. I'm just going to do it right now while I have you on the line.
2: Yeah. <laughs> it, it's a service. It's a service that people would even gladly pay for. Right. You're right. Like if Facebook had a page recovery. Um <laughs> right. a page recovery feature that right. that you could pay a hundred bucks to get your business page back.
1: Yeah. Um name your price, talk about your perverse incentives. Right. <laughs>
2: you know, people would pay for that. Yeah. And especially if if their business business pages got taken over. Mm-hmm. Um you know, our catch of the day is actually from a friend of mine. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's from a uh a person who I don't know if they're impersonating his friend or if they took over his account, mm. but they're trying to scam him. So that's another use case for these social media uh accounts. Yeah. Whenever whenever you get whenever you get a message from somebody that's kind of out of the blue and unexpected, you should be alert, right? Right. If you haven't heard from somebody in a while and all of a sudden they're talking to you about something, either maybe their account's been broken into or perhaps they've become involved in some kind of multi-level marketing program, right? <laughs> Either case, way. Right. Either way.
1: <laughs> Shields up. Right. <laughs>
2: okay. They have some interesting data in here about statistics on on timing. Monday and Tuesday are the top days for fishing. Hmm. Which I think is is interesting. Uh hmm. 78% of fishing attacks occur on weekdays. These guys have regular jobs, Dave.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <These> yeah. <fishers. laughs> Nine to
2: five. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Uh Monday and Thursday are the top days for phishing Facebook. And Thursday and Friday are the top days for phishing Microsoft, Fishing for Microsoft credentials. Huh. Which, that doesn't surprise me, right? Because if you're fishing somebody for Microsoft credentials, you're probably going after a Microsoft 365 account yeah. that a business uses. Right. And the best days to hit those are at the end of the week when people are tired mm-hmm. and they're just looking forward to getting out of, just out of it. Just want
1: to clean out that inbox right. and hit exactly. the weekend. Yep. 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 Makes sense.
2: So the, the report is from Vade Security. Uh, you can check it out if you want. They have a pretty good summary on the page, uh, on the link that we'll put in the show notes. Uh, but if you want to click through and get the whole report, it's a pretty good report. Yeah. All right. But it's got Excellent. a lot of interesting statistics. And you know, Dave, I love statistics.
1: Yes, you do. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, it's time to move on to our catch of the day.
2: As I said before, Dave, uh, our catch of the day comes from a f- friend and former coworker of mine named Bob. Bob, by the way, writes beautiful code. <laughs> okay, <laughs> you know, you ever see someone's code when they write it, and it's just like, to you, you don't, you haven't even read the code yet, but you look at it. And it's just like, man, that looks nice. It's a work of art. It's a work of art. Bob's code was always like that. All right. So, uh, like I said, Bob has been... Wait, wait, wait. What was your code like, Joe? My code was also like that. I've had people tell me the same thing. Oh, okay. You know, because I'm meticulous. Maybe that's why I appreciate Bob's style layout. Okay. Because maybe what I'm actually saying is that Bob and I have the same kind of uh, style layout that we do in our code. I see. Okay. (laughs) All right. Good enough. Fair enough. But it makes it easier for me to read the code. Yeah. So, uh, Bob had a has a friend named Darren. And I don't know if this is Darren's account that got compromised or somebody is impersonating Darren, but somebody is sending Bob a message. And Bob, of course, realizes immediately, this is not Darren. Mm. So why don't you play the part of Darren and I'll play the part of Bob.
1: Okay. Hello, how are you doing? What's up? Damn good. Did you watch the news last week about Steve Phillips? He is the agent in charge of the new program by the federal government for those who need assistance paying bills, buying a home, starting their own business, going to school, or even helping raise their children with old and retired people and disabled. I got $85,000 delivered to me when I apply for the grant and you don't have to pay it back.
2: Damn. Can I borrow $5,000?
1: Let me give you the link to text him. I'm sure you will qualify for it. I don't need the link to
2: text him. Trust me. Don't send. Oh, okay. If you can't, buy. Can I just borrow $5,000 from you? No. Come on, bro. You don't need $85,000. How about just $2,000? Have use it for basic things. Oh, how about $500? So at this point, Bob just starts messing with me and goes, hey, how are you doing? Did you hear about the actress that got stabbed last week? Reese something. I'll pretend you said Witherspoon, and then I'll say no with a knife. Are you there? Can you still hear me? Hey, did you hear the news last week about Steve Phillips? I'll send you the link to text him. Hold on. <laughs> so Bob just starts copying and pasting the guy's messages back right, to him. Right, But by the time this has started, the guys realize what's going on. It's probably blocked him. He's probably blocked him, yeah. yeah, yeah. Now, I've had this
1: happen to me before where a friend's account has been compromised and they start texting me out of the blue. I think the point you made earlier in the show about, I think particularly – uh, if you start getting text messages from someone who has never texted you before right. <laughs> and they're this casual and, and you know, then that's uh, obviously a, a big red flag. Right. Yep. Yeah. All right. Well, a good catch of the day. Uh, we would love to hear from you. If you have something you would like for us to share on the show, you can email us. It's hackinghumans at com. I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Justin Riley. He is the CEO of a company called Impero. And we discussed the mental health of kids in the digital age, and particularly uh, the transition that we've seen as kids had to uh, go to school remotely over the past years, and and some of the software uh, that has sort of uh, inserted itself into that uh, kid-teacher relationship. Here's my conversation with Justin Riley.
0: I think it stands to reason that using technology... Uh, in some subjects, is far more straightforward than using in others. You know, if you look at mathematics, which is my background, versus English, um, it is much harder to use the technology to assess English literature responses to questions than it is to assess mathematics. You know, it's not completely difficult, it's not impossible, but nonetheless, the technology is quite different. And the subject matter content will lend itself either to the use of technology or otherwise. But I think if you look at how teachers are interacting with learners and how they're using technology in the classroom, um, it, it's come to a bit of a head thanks to the pandemic. I mean, certainly my perception is that. Uh, where there was a reluctance prior to the pandemic to use technology across a lot of the profession, a significant amount of that has gone away because we were forced through uh, various different lockdowns, various different stages, to embrace either hybrid learning or remote learning or or some combination thereof. And we're still seeing, uh, you know, across the board, you know, whilst majoritively people are back in the classroom, there is certainly still elements where uh, children are being sent home or have got COVID and need to work from home or teachers are off because they've been tested positive and and that's impacting, you know, school's ability to to teach normally, you know. So, we're not out of the woods yet. I think we all agree it's moving in the right direction, but nonetheless, it's not there yet. And so, what it means is at the moment, I think you have teachers who are more prepared to use technology And not just for assessment and setting of homework, which is positive, but actually to use it from an instructional point of view. And you have organizations who are busy creating the tools and the content to help teachers to deliver education virtually or face-to-face in use of technology. And the the number of devices, you know, in the US, you're almost at a one-to-one ratio of device to learner. So access to that material is also much more um, prevalent. It certainly is something that, that we're going to see increasing throughout the world, and we're moving in that direction.
1: So before we talk about um, the potential to assess a student's mental health, can we talk about just privacy in general? When software developers like yourselves are, are working on these sort of solutions, what is the approach to the privacy for students?
0: It's, I mean, I can only talk about our organization, but I, th- I think this is certainly true of the majority of my peers. You know, we put data privacy and the child very much at the center of what we do. Uh, and we work daily to try and protect children. And that comes in various different formats. The, the first one is to make sure that only those that have access or have a need to have access to the data get access to the data. And secondly, what data they can access should be dictated by their role. In other words, it's not a, a free-for-all, dip in and have a look around. Then you've got to look at who owns the data. Actually, we are we are not the data owner. We process data, and we you know, enlighten teachers and educators to some sort of the outcomes from that processing. But we absolutely don't own the rights to that data. Now, once we've done analysis and we've created should we say information for teachers to use that's then put into the hands of those teachers and it's for them to go and use or a counsellor or a digital safeguarding lead or, or whoever it may be so in order to do that we have to get permission from each and every school to do that within the school context you know we don't have the right to to pull the data out and use it unless the school has assessed what we're doing with it uh, and ensure that we're complying with all the decent uh, regulations and rules that we have to. So as it stands at the moment, we are GDPR compliant. We are, you know, we apply to COPRA, FERPA, you know, we go through them all.
1: So in terms of assessing a student's mental health and and uh, determining if a, a child may be struggling, you know, in a classroom, I think uh, good teachers have a sense for this. They can tell if, if a child is having uh, not a good day or or worse. How do you go about doing an assessment like that with their online interactions?
0: So one of the things we are looking at, and this is one of a number of different things that we look at, is what they're trying to do. So, for example, we have keyword detection where we have a a list of around 27,500 keywords covering a a very large array of different topics with different levels of severity. Um, I think one of the things, being a UK started organization we're certainly not a uk-based organization now we're predominantly us and we're in in fact about 100 different countries but one of the things that we gain from being uh, in the uk is their regulation around safeguarding and well-being is slightly enhanced so there is an expectation that all schools are monitoring digitally what children are doing against that array of different topics and that could range from eating disorders to domestic abuse to bullying all the way up to you know the 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 ones that we are particularly scared about obviously shooting suicide etc uh, etc et so by watching what they're doing by looking at the keywords by then assessing the keyword against the context and we're in the process of of refining our artificial intelligence to to really be better at understanding that context we can begin to build a profile in one of our um, products, well-being, we're also encouraging teachers to manually input their observations as well, to put alongside those digital observations the very things that they see. You know, little Johnny was uh, quiet today, or he had a bruise on him, or or something that that may add a dimension to that that uh, chronology as well. And it's by viewing that chronology that we start to get a sense of the well-being around that particular child and uh, whether there's a potential mental health issue or something that we should be flagging to people within the school
1: how do you determine who is the most appropriate party to be alerted that there's an issue and because I'm thinking you know if a child a child could have an issue with a teacher a child could have an issue with a parent or with another child um, is there a a way that you look at this and and decide who best to to notify?
0: We we won't make those decisions. The decisions would come from the school. So we would expect the school mm. to work with us to identify who the right character and the right player in that child's life would be. Um, the uh, you know, where we're moving towards is a place where we're much more precise on that particular nature. Um, you use the example of the child may have an issue with the teacher you wouldn't flag a concern of that nature to that particular teacher for obvious reasons. You would need to find right. a counsellor or or someone else that was within the school that would be the right person to contact. And, and likewise, if you're talking domestic abuse, the last thing you want to do is to send a text to the to the parent and say, "Hey, we think there's this problem going on." That that in itself would be just a, a trigger. So, right. prior to the use of something like wellbeing, there is time spent with the school to understand who within the school should be contacted for what types of events or what types of concerns that we've got coming up. When it comes to digital safeguarding, of course, this is going to be as a, on a response to something that the child has done on the computer. So it will be, if I, I use eating disorder as a good example. If we know that the child has got um, an eating disorder and we see that they're searching for appetite suppressant pages then or articles, then we would flag that to the right person within the organization so they could then run the intervention. We don't do the intervention. It's not on us to do that. We can't do that. We're too removed.
1: Do you have any examples of, of success stories here where where uh, you have flagged something and, and, um, and it's led to good outcomes for the students?
0: Well, there are many. I mean, obviously, it's difficult to use real people in these conversations and as much as i would sure. love to I, you know I can't but I think probably the one that stands out prior to the pandemic I was down at uh, a show in Florida really good show um based in Miami Beach and I had a teacher come up uh and thank me immediately for saving the lives of two children within the school and mm-hmm. obviously to us that's anecdotal you know we say well, that's fantastic you know that's why we're here right but give us a bit more information. And, and essentially he said we had flagged that there was a concern through our systems that there were two children who had been uh, looking at sites that were related to suicide and on further investigation, they were both children that had been considering it very seriously and that intervention had worked. So, you know, that's that's why we're here. That's why we do what we're doing. But it isn't only about that. That's sort of the, the, the extreme edge, if you like. The other edge, if you bring it in, is also on the impact of learning. So for every one child that we can save on something as severe as, say, a shooting or, or um, as a suicide. On the flip side, you've got to also consider the many, many children whose education is being impacted because they're just not in a happy place. They, they need to be more settled. They need support with some issues that will then help them to be successful in the learning environment. Because ultimately, education, you know that's at its core. That's That's what teachers are there for.
1: What is the reaction of the teachers to this? I mean, it strikes me that, um, you know, this helps them do their job and can help take some of the burden off of them. Um, we all know teachers are, are overworked, um, and so I could imagine that with everything they have to do, they probably appreciate something like this sort of having their back, being another set of eyes on their students.
0: That's my impression. I mean, I'm, I'm a teacher. I started my career as a, a mathematics teacher in a high school in central London. So I'm, I'm well aware of the pressure that is being placed on, on individual teachers. And in fact, I'd say the pressures now are far greater than the, when I was in, in the classroom. My view is that if we can provide information to a teacher that helps them to intervene earlier, that's a good thing. And if that intervention is, as I say, regarding learning as well as anything else, that is also a good thing, you know, because the same digital tools can also help us to identify how productive somebody is in the classroom. Are they on task? Are they off task? You know, really simple things like that can uh, make quite a difference to how a teacher is engaging with the class. Yeah, you know, we talk about mobility in a classroom, Well, the digital classroom is no different. You need to be moving amongst the students to see how they're getting on. But if you have a tool that is assessing, the pace of learning and uh, is assessing the well-being of students for you and presenting you with information about individual children that can help inform the way you teach, that has got to be a positive. And so, yeah, I I, I absolutely think teachers embrace this. When it's used fully, it it becomes a very powerful aid.
1: How do you strike the balance uh, between doing what you're doing here, but also uh, respecting people's privacy, I can imagine you know there are probably folks out there who would push back on this sort of thing, uh, as they do on on anything that they would see as perhaps being a little invasive.
0: I think, well, yeah, I, I think we need to, to understand what invasive means on this one because it, in having the data and holding the data and never letting go of the data um, for no purpose. In other words, you know having that data doesn't help anybody do anything. I think they would have a have a genuine point, wouldn't they? If again, you know, when they ask you to remove the data after a period of time, if you refuse to do so, again i th- I think they would have a genuine case. But that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about using data to understand and learn and improve and inform, you know, and it's as simple as that, and as soon as it serves that purpose, it should no longer be with us. We should be removing any data that is, uh, and we do, you know, removing any data that is no longer valid, no longer required, or is about an individual that that you know, we have no purpose to 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 view. And I think there are some really strict rules that we do need to be following to make sure that people can feel comfortable that the data is only being used for something honourable and genuine, and that at no point is it being used to say, let's say, monetize in a different direction and And those are again in, in our industry, certainly the the leading players uh, you know we we absolutely focus on that we We don't want to be doing anything that is is an imposition or is contravening people's own personal liberties and i think I think that's a very important distinction, but at the same time, if I've got an opportunity to assess millions of children to understand better the early triggers that may lead to an event, I think we have an obligation to do that as well. And I think being able to assess data en masse, whether it's anonymized or pseudonymized or or however, in order to be able to very quickly identify a pool of children who are potentially at some point in the future gonna be at risk, and intervene before it becomes a problem, I also think that's very, very important. You know, the damage is often done once you get in front of a child. So the sooner we can get in front of them, the better. All
2: right, Joe, what do you think? Yeah, I'm not sure how I feel about this, Dave. Hmm. Um, you know, I, I I think that aiding in teachers updating their teaching style for kids is great. Yeah. Right, and, and that... Software that says, okay, maybe these kids need uh, you to do something different, right? That's fine. That's wonderful. You mentioned this before the interview, uh, and I'm not going out on a limb on saying this, that the the education system globally has been really disrupted for the past two years yeah. or so. Uh, and that has had an impact, and that we are going to be seeing that impact for years to come. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can all agree that that privacy and education is paramount, right? Right. Right. Um, Again, not a controversial statement. You know, I'm not I'm not going out on a limb and saying anything here, um, but it's much more important when you're evaluating the mental health of a student mm. as well. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm I'm glad to hear that Justin has uh, a serious attitude about the privacy of the data for his students, and that he's not using it as uh, marketing data. That's great. That's yeah. fantastic. Yep. Um, and the examples he provides are are wonderful. You know it it is it is. Fantastic that he was able to inter or that he was able to provide information that allowed teachers to intervene in the case of suicidal students yeah. or students who are considering suicide. Fantastic, good work. Mm-hmm. Um, and systems like this can help teachers intervene when it, when inter, when intervention is necessary. I would think.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, my only concern is I still have concerns about the data privacy hmm. um, and. And I understand that uh, I still tend to err on the side of privacy and still be tend to concern myself with with the privacy, particularly when you're talking about children. so as yeah. long as as long as this technology is implementing the proper controls and safety measures to make sure that that is in place, mm-hmm. ok then, yeah, um, that's good, yeah. And, it,
1: I mean, it's an intimate relationship that our your your student, your your kids have with their teachers, yep. And we put our kids in our teachers' hands for a huge part of their life right? and trust them to uh, let us know if they think our kids are, have, are struggling with something. right? And so shifting that to, I guess, putting a wall between our kids and the teachers, That's the technological wall, that makes it all the more challenging. right? So maybe software like this can help.
2: Oh, you're talking uh, about, like, put, when you say putting a wall, you're talking about the distance.
1: Well, putting, yeah, exactly. I mean, the teacher's not wa- walking through the classroom, right? you know, having a sense for that kid just doesn't seem right today.
2: Yeah, they're not getting as much body language reading from them. Exactly. Things of that nature. Exactly. Particularly if the kid turns off his camera while he's in, in class. Yeah. Right?
1: Yeah. And you uh, could imagine a kid who's having trouble, who's struggling, would do just that. Yep. yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, again, uh, our thanks to Justin Riley for joining us. Uh, Really interesting stuff. We do appreciate him taking the
2: time. Definitely.
1: That is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. We want to thank the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute for their participation. You can learn more at isi.jhu.edu. The Hacking Humans podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben, our executive editor is Peter Kilby. I'm Dave Bittner
2: and I'm Joe Kerrigan. Thanks for listening.
1: Hey listeners, and share your feedback now.